Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Perspectives podcast series by Women in Securities Finance. Today, we're very excited to bring to you a recent live discussion that was held in London during the IMN 25th Anniversary European Beneficial Owners Securities Finance and Collateral Management Conference held on September the 13th. I had the pleasure to be joined by a fellow securities finance industry veteran, Melissa Gao from S&P Global Market Intelligence, to dive into topics such as the gender wage gap and gender wealth gap and how that continues to impact gender equality in the workplace. We're going to take you directly to our discussion in London. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Brooke Gilman. Hi, everyone. I'm Melissa Gao. Thank you for joining us. And so today, we're hoping to explore the gender wealth gap. And so gender pay gap is something that probably we're all very familiar with, or at least the women in this room might be familiar with, unfortunately. You know, there's a lot of information and a lot of research over the years that has been produced on women that have the same exact role with the same qualifications are oftentimes paid far less than their male counterparts and what that means over time. And ultimately, the gender pay gap is a problem and it's something that people, individuals and and organizations are trying to chip away at. But more importantly is what that means and what it means to women and ultimately how that has created a gender wealth gap. And I think that's important not just to the advancement of women, but I think it's also important to a lot of our organizations in the investment space and how do we pay attention. There's a huge amount of wealth that is not actively invested in the marketplace because women also have a gender investment gap. And so that's really what we're looking to explore today. And I thought maybe, Melissa, we could start off with engaging in that gender wealth gap conversation which is an important topic that doesn't get nearly enough airtime. So here's some very, very sobering statistics that I've gotten from our friends at Alavest. In the UK, women overall earn 90p for every pound earned by men. And this is from a study earlier this year. In the US, the figure is 83 cents. And that's across all women. So if you are an Asian woman, black woman, Latina woman, those numbers get far worse. Women on average reach their peak earnings at the age of 44 which is bad news for me, folks. I'm on the downhill end of that now. Keep, I have one year to go. <laughs> and keep climbing for longer and reach their peak earnings at age 55. Women are in the workforce for less time, often not by choice, sometimes by situations due to unpaid leave or family care or illness. Less time in the workforce means fewer years earning and building wealth. For every dollar owned by a white man, women overall own 32 cents. Over the course of a 40-year career, women on average lose about $900,000 compared to a man. So those numbers don't look great. No. And if you think about it, money equals power. And so if ultimately men are sharing greater wealth, it also just continues to feed that imbalance of power in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Do women feel more beholden to men in conversations? Is the inner dynamic amongst men and women, how much does Mm -hmm. that wealth gap not just impact what they can do and what their lifestyle is and their health and wellness and welfare, but also I think it continues to play into that power dynamic too. I think we all spend a lot of time thinking about the pay gap, right? And, And we should, and that's important. But thinking about the wealth gap is also important because it's a measure of inequality over time. It's not a point in time, it's over time. And it speaks to a woman's capacity to make things better for not just themselves, but their descendants and future generations and create stability for the future generations. 
I think we're just starting to see some studies come out now about the impact that COVID has had on women in the workforce. So the numbers that I'm quoting were from 2020, so before the pandemic. And I think actually when we look back on this period, we'll see that we've taken some steps backwards in terms of the wealth gap. So that's a bit unfortunate. What should we be doing to address it? I think that's the key question. So for me, it comes down to pay, as we've already discussed. So all of the things that we're doing to pay women fairly and equitably and to move women to the C-levels and to promote them into management roles that are the more highly paid roles. I think we've made some good progress in that, but across the board, we still have a way to go. I think also we need to address the fact that women typically spend less time in the workforce and to acknowledge how difficult that is just to start or to re-enter the workforce. I know that a number of the firms that we work with and a number of our clients and prospects and others in the industry, we spend a lot of time, we have programs for women who need to come back into the workforce or want to come back, sort of an on-ramp sort of program. I think that that's not just good for men, it's good for anybody who wants to come back into the industry, but to make that more fluid. I think the one thing that maybe was good that came out of this hybrid work from home working situation is that it destigmatized the idea of wanting to work from home. Many of us used to have long commutes, right? We used to work five days a week in an office. I know myself, I had a terrible commute. When I didn't have to do that anymore during the pandemic, that was transformational for me. I had more time for myself. I had more time for my family, had more time for work even. So I think now that it's more acceptable to have a hybrid work situation. That makes it a lot easier for women to stay in the workforce. So I hope that that continues. I hope that we're able, as we return to office, as many of us already have, many of us are transitioning back into that, that that's something that sticks with us because I do think that that's something that will keep women in the workforce longer and then that will address the pay gap, the promotion gap, and ultimately the wealth gap. So we have three things here. We have gender pay gap, gender wealth gap, but also how that connects back to gender investing gap. Sure. I think that's a really interesting subject as well. Probably something we won't be able to cover. But if you think about it, women have less money. They earn less money, they have less money. But also how they invest it is very, very different. I was looking at some research that suggests that the majority of women keep their money in cash and liquid investments. It's a behavioral, it's a psychological thing. It's the way that money is marketed to them. It's the fact that in the financial services industry, I think 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men. Well, and if you think about it, if a woman generally throughout her career perhaps has been earning less, having less wealth, they finally get that wealth, they start to accumulate it, they save enough, now they want to hold on to it. You know, and women are sort of taught this marketing and the world at large teaches women to not spend frivolously. So, oh, you really shouldn't buy that latte. You know, you shouldn't buy a latte every day. You shouldn't buy those fancy shoes. You shouldn't buy that fancy purse. You need to save your money. You need to save your money. You need to take care of your family. Whereas how often are the marketers and culture telling men not to buy that new fancy sports car, that new truck? You know, men are sort of encouraged to spend their money in that way. So women, from a psychological perspective, Mm -hmm. they get to the point where they have enough wealth that they could be an investor And they then tend to, I think, want to hold on to that and want to keep that money safe. Yes, I think that there's a huge opportunity in terms of addressing that. I think a lot of it, like we've said, is behavioral. I think a lot of it is just feeling like you don't even know what to do or you don't even know how to get started. So one topic that's been important to me is financial literacy. Starting at a really young age, I've done some volunteer work in the primary schools and teaching financial literacy 
and investment basics and, and things like that. And I've done that with my own daughter as well. It's really important. She knows it's important for her to be able to understand the role of money, financial literacy, understanding how to invest. So I'm hoping that the next generations will be better off than certainly my generation and the generations that came before me. And if you think about it too, and the good news is, is that I think organizations in our industry and other financial firms can ultimately improve for the long term is making investing more accessible to women. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. companies in our marketplace that I know are highly focused on that yes. these days. But when you think about what's the statistic, like 98 or some odd percent of financial advisors are men. So again, giving women the opportunity to have a comfortable conversation, and this is not just about investing, I think this is how women are just in general. Women tend to think that they can't do something unless they are an expert at it first. And so when it comes to investing, someone outside of the financial markets might be very uncomfortable moving forward with investing unless they really feel like they understand it fully. Whereas I think research tends to say that men would probably move forward with something, having less full knowledge of whatever the particular topic is. So again, when you relate that back to investing, you know, a man might feel very comfortable moving forward, not having a real detailed knowledge of the financial markets, whereas I think women tend to be more apprehensive on that before they invest. Yeah. So I think to sum it up, there's a lot more to do here. And I think it's really important to keep the debate going. Great. So tell me a little bit about your career and what your progression was. I mean, I know I just said, I admitted to everyone at the beginning that we've gotten to know each other a lot mm-hmm. better over the past five years, but I probably don't know your history and where you started and what brought you ultimately into securities finance. I think I'm a good example of somebody who didn't know anything about what she wanted to do as a child, thinking about what she wanted to do. I didn't come from a background that was corporate or business focused. I came from a family of academics and teachers So I remember when I got my first job at Swiss Bank Corporation after graduating from university, and the people in my neighborhood said, oh, you're going to be a bank teller. And I thought, no, I'm not going to be a bank teller. That's not what this kind of bank does. And then I thought, okay, there's a gap here. So my humble roots started at Swiss Bank Corporation a very, very long time ago. I don't think I found securities finance. I think securities finance found me. Through a divestiture at Goldman Sachs, I ended up at Equiland for a number of years. And then I found my way to Data Explorers and... That became Market IHS Market and now SP Global Market Intelligence. So I think we always say about securities finance, it's not rocket science, but there's a lot of nuance to it. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about this industry is that the relationships that I've had and developed have been really, really deep and long lasting. So I think there's a couple of things that I wanted to highlight that I think are important when we talk about building a career and building longevity. I've been in the securities finance industry for think over 15 years, but I've been in financial services for over 30 years. So I've done a bunch of different things. So I think for me, when I look back on my career, it's been a career of resilience. It hasn't always been that way. I think early on, I had none of the qualities that I have today. I would have never thought I would have been able to sit up here in front of a crowd of people, some of whom I know and some of whom I don't, and talk about myself. So the idea of really doing the hard work putting the hard work in to develop the skills that you want to have and the way that you want people to perceive you and to think about you. I had to do a lot of work to get to that point where I could get my voice out there. But I think the thing about resilience is you only build it by having things happen to you and sometimes not some very good things. So for me, it's always been eye on the long run. Keep my eye on the long run. People who know me know I'm not a sprinter. I'm a marathoner. I'm in it for the long haul. So 
things happen, we recover for them. Things happen, you recover for them, and you just keep learning and you keep building that. It's something that I worked on a lot with elementary, primary school children as well, building resilience in them. I think that's such a key life skill, and I've been fortunate enough to build that along the way. I agree that resilience is incredibly important to your own personal success, mm -hmm. career success, et cetera. But how do you advise someone, especially at a young age, how they might build that over time? I mean, it's a hard thing yeah. because, again, you have to sort of live through things to then mm -hmm. ultimately become resilient and come out right. on the other side of it. Is it more about encouragement? Is it more about having that endurance marathon mindset? I mean, what do you think? I think it's about recognizing that there's very few mistakes or fatal mistakes we don't punish people for making mistakes. We don't punish people for bad things happening, right? We learn. We have to learn. So it's kind of a cycle of you make a mistake, maybe you fail, and then you learn from it. So it's not so much the failing. It's what did you learn from what happened? And I think it's important to give encouragement. I think that for me, that started at a really young age. I was allowed to make mistakes. I made mistakes. I learned from them. It wasn't fatal, and I moved on. So I think building that confidence in someone else can be quite challenging. It's quite possible. I do a lot of work, some people in the audience know this, about finding your voice, right? And for me, that was a really important thing was to find my voice. I was a very, very soft-spoken, kind of very introverted person at the beginning of my career. And I worked really hard to be able to sit at a table and get my opinion out there. I was terrified at the beginning. I would go to meetings and I would say nothing and I would just think, oh, I wanted to say that. And someone else would say it and I'd think, oh, that's what I should have said. And I put a lot of the hard work in to be able to get my opinion out there, get my point across, do it in a way that's consistent with my own style, because I'm not the loudest voice in the room. I'm never going to be the loudest voice in the room, but you don't have to be. And I've done a lot of work with other women, some men as well, some folks even in the audience I know I've worked with. And it's so rewarding to see that, to see that journey, to see people like myself who have the voice inside but just couldn't get it out. And to be able to see that happen has really been a great journey. Well, I'm glad you found your voice. I'm glad you <laughs> shared it with us today. Both, I think, the information on the gender wealth gap, I think it's something that we should all remind ourselves about and think about the ways in which we can perhaps affect change. So whether that's in your organization, do you have the ability when you're hiring to be transparent on pay? Do you have the ability as a male ally to talk to your female colleagues about pay? Give them that transparency. I think that's one way to help address gender pay gap. And over time, I think that helps to ultimately address this wealth gap. But I think it's beholden upon each of us, whether it be in our capacity as financial professionals and the organizations we work with and how we can affect change, whether we can encourage more people to come into this industry, which I think generally helps women, you know, the more diversity we have in this industry, I think the greater impact we can have on this wealth gap over time. But ultimately, I loved hearing your stories and I loved having you share with us today, Melissa. So thank you. Thank I'm you sorry so I didn't get to ask you it's any okay. questions. okay. I have a loud voice. Yeah, okay. I've shared it all. <laughs> <laughs> Just tune into our past podcast. So I have. Yes. Thank you. Thanks yes. For me thank on. you, everyone. All right. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance. We really hoped you enjoyed the conversation from the IMN conference, and we're excited to continue sharing these types of discussion and other leadership stories and career development opportunities throughout the marketplace. If you have ideas for future podcasts or would like to join as a speaker, please don't hesitate to reach out to Women in Securities Finance, and you can follow us on LinkedIn and visit our website. 
Thank you again to both Melissa Gao from S&P Global Market Intelligence, as well as the Information Management Network. We really appreciate you giving Women in Securities Finance the platform to share our perspectives. Have a great day, everyone.